This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Welcome to Brownie and Blue Podcast with your host, MC. That's me. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at Brownie and Blue and make sure to check out the Heroes Podcast Network at heroespodcastnetwork.com and follow all the great podcasts that are offered in that network. Bienvenidos, mi gente, a Brownie and Blue podcast. This is MC, your host. You can call me MC or you can call me Merritt. Doesn't matter. I am here with John Imperial. Yes, that is his real name. <laughs> Most people would probably be like, what? Sounds like a superhero. But he's not. In a way, he is. Because he was and is in law enforcement for the past 12 years. He also is in the Army Reserves. And he has an incredible podcast called Point Man Podcast. Please welcome John Imperial. John, how are you, man? I'm doing well, Mary. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Uh, I'm so excited about this. Uh, just for the listeners, we've met by the power of Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of it's fun nowadays. I know. That it's such a beautiful thing because I think one of the most important aspects of what needs to happen is to get the other side of law enforcement first responder yeah. stories out there as opposed to what we see in the media today. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. It's good to see the the positive light that social media has had on, you know, law enforcement. It's had some negative things, uh, especially in this area recently in the past week or so. But social media and law enforcement, I like to see the guys and men and women. When I say guys, it's both, you know, men and women uh, just out there posting pictures of them interacting with the community, you know, other cops from that you would never, I mean, Merritt, we probably would have never met before sort of thing. So it's just getting to know people and networking. And it's a good, it's a good tool to use. Oh, for sure. Definitely a great tool. Um, and also breaking down barriers because what most people don't realize is that there's always cause and effect in what law enforcement does. Right. Right. And what happens that is put in the media is not cause and effect. It's usually the effect or the result of something that somebody else did. Exactly. And so that snippet's like what, five seconds, seven seconds? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you want to see, you have to see the entire video or whatever it is. Cause that video literally all it does is capture that frame at that point in time. And that's all it sees. It doesn't get everything else around it. It doesn't get the bystanders. It also doesn't get the call why we got there. And then, mainly doesn't get what happens after you know exactly. what i mean so. yep. all the legwork that goes into it most exactly. people don't see that exactly so let me ask you john um just for the listeners to get to know you better what is your background how did you come upon or want to get into law enforcement and then also you're you're still active in the army reserve so you're still Correct. so so for one thank you for your service for both law enforcement and the reserves but tell the listeners your background and how you got well, into these. I was born with last name Imperial, so I figured I had to do something that, you know, kind of they kind of held that up. You know, I got to do something. It was um, kind of have that that typical, I've always wanted to be a cop since I've been yay, yay tall sort of thing. I've always wanted to be a police officer. Years and years ago, when I was like seven or eight years old, I can't really remember when, 
my the house we were living in at the, in, at the time was broken into. And my mother's cousin was the officer who came out to take the report. And, you know, I always had, I had the bug eyes looking at him, looking at the shiny uniform, the shiny car. And I was just enamored by, you know, look at this guy who's coming out to help us. And ever since then, you know, I always wanted to be a police officer and had some mentors along the way. Uh, my lacrosse coach, my lacrosse coach growing up was actually the chief of police in the town that we were living. And so I was probably that annoying kid that did as many ride-alongs as he could. I know I can see you smiling right there. You know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. I was, I, that was me at that point in time. And I did as many ride-alongs as I could while I was in uh, high school. And, you know, just got to know the guys that I was riding with. I saw the, it was fun. It's funny because some other people have asked me, you know, how is the job different from what you thought it was to what it actually is? And, you know, when you're doing all the ride-alongs, all you see are the, the, the lights and siren going fast, the arrest, all that stuff. You don't see the 90% of what the job is, the paperwork, the meetings, the court time, and all this, that, and the other thing. So, yeah, I guess getting back into it, that's, you know, main reason why I want to become a police officer. Um, I had some family that was in the military growing up listening to my uh, grandfather who served in Korea, or served during Korea, but not in Korea. Um, who served during Korea, listening to his stories and whatnot. It was really something that I was passionate about. Um, I wanted to go in there out of high school into the Marine Corps. I was probably the only eighth grader at the time that was trying to enlist after 9-11 happened. Wow. But, um, but, you know, it was one of those things that was just passionate to me that I always wanted to serve my country, my community. And yeah, I, I actually I didn't end up enlisting out of high school. I went to college, got my bachelor's degree. And was fortunate enough to have a job as a police officer right when I graduated college. In fact, I had to end college a few weeks early just to have my job and start full time. College ended in like May-ish. And then I actually started April 5th of 2010 was my first day as a sworn law enforcement officer. So it was something I always wanted to do. But being fortunate enough to have the job right after college, it didn't really happen. And, you know, I, I was 29 years old. I don't know if I had a midlife crisis or whatever it was, but it was like, I, I, it was something I had to do. And it was always itching and a burning desire of mine. And at 20, the ripe old age of 29, I uh, went down to the recruiter's office and yeah, enlisted as a, uh, a medic and turned 30 while at boot camp at Fort Benning in Georgia and been there for the past four years. So that's such an amazing story. I love the fact that you put in there that your coach, was one he not only was he the chief of the town that you were in but he was the one that kind of inspired you to get into this profession yeah he was it was it, it, it's interesting because he actually was the one who told me where he went to college westfield state university uh it was college at the time now university but that's where he went to study criminal justice and i that's where i ended up going as well just because of its huge uh criminal justice program so but it was like you said it was one of those things where he's out interacting with the kids teaching them and, you know, being that positive role model for them. I think, uh, I think what's poignant about that is that most people don't understand the lives that law enforcement officers live outside of law enforcement, right? It's not just in this uniform, right? Like you're part of a community, especially when it comes to small kind of township or whatever type of communities, a lot of law enforcement officers not only live with your neighbors, live with the people that they are dealing with on a daily basis, 
their coaching, their mentoring, their, you know, cousins, brothers, sisters, all these types of things where this person is a very great influence, right? And so exactly. for you, you're, you're talking about that. You're talking about the actual positive influences that one person did with you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and how that affected your life. And let me ask you an offshoot, but what have, have you had kind of similar instances with when your law enforcement career kind of took off and you were in that community? Did you feel or know uh, even today that you've affected other people's lives? I hope I have, you know, it's one of those things that I only have 12 years on right now. So I, I hope I've had that influence in other people's lives. I've, participated in a big brother sort of program where I was a uh, big brother essentially to a to a kid who didn't have any friends and mm. just getting out there and interacting with the the, the children or the youth of the, the area you don't realize it's not something most of the time in my opinion isn't something that you see immediately you know what I mean it's mm. a it's a it's a building block it's something that you have that constant interaction with those kids you, you're out there every single day with them not every single day but you know often enough you get to know their name and who their parents are and where they come from what struggles they may have it's i mean like i like i was telling you earlier i was that kid that was doing ride-alongs we i definitely have given the ride-alongs to that kid before that you know have now become police officers i i hope i've had that i mean i i can't think of an instance where i have i mean I have in the military, we, we keep what we call the, I love me binder. Mm. And, and I don't know if you did that in your career, but in mine, it's, you know, I, I kept everything that was sent to me, you know, the, the postcards, the, the mail or whatever it was that was, Hey, thank you officer Imperial for whatever you did. And, and some of them it's, it's been good to see because it's a lot of kids who are going through drug addiction or that sort of problem. And you're trying to help them out and, yeah, it, sometimes there there's good that can come from it, and good about well, by good I mean just the the positive impact it can right. come from that. Yeah. So, yeah. you you also mentioned your your military career, and you went in as a medic. Yeah. Right. So you've been in that for the past five four years, right? Yeah. Um. So with that, have you been deployed? Have you gone and used your your training and, and medic uh type duties anywhere in the world for, for the military so i became while i was in college I became an emt for the first time uh and and did that on a volunteer basis in that my college's area and then i let that lapse and then got a certification that was a little bit lower than that and then got my emt again in the meantime i was always taking those tcc classes and everything and and uh being the, the medic on the swat team but for the military itself, I haven't been deployed to any combat zones or anything like that yet. I've been activated for the coronavirus, um, but nothing overseas deployment or anything like that right now. But the training even within the military, as far as even being not only a medic for the military, but you talked about, you just said the SWAT team. Yep. So as a medic for the SWAT team, you obviously have to know, I mean, you got to know your shit. Because yeah. not, I mean, like for real, I mean, right. Like you're not going to be the medic for the SWAT team, just being Joe blow and not knowing your shit. They're not going to exactly. pick you. If you don't know your shit. So for you, like, 
you know, do you, do you train these guys? Do you train other law enforcement officers on the kind of tactics of, uh, you know, the medical care that you would provide? Because what, and hear me out. So the question, your medic experience coincides and correlates with what happens in the field of fire, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. And so based on that, most people don't understand that's a very important role in a SWAT team, but it should be something that's very important even for knowledgeable base on a patrol officer's beat. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. It's when I teach other officers, you know, I, the kind of spiel that I give is this is not only for you. It's, 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 how do I say it? It's not only for you, but it's for you to treat other people. And the best thing that can happen is the knowledge that I, hopefully give them and what they learn out of the class is that they actually use that to save lives of people that they don't know, some stranger that, that had something horrific happen to them. Um, but yeah, the, we, I go through TCCC training, so the tactical combat casualty care, and I tailor that towards law enforcement too, because there's a lot of stuff that the TCCC focuses on that isn't really necessarily pertain well to law enforcement. A lot of that is like the medicine that you give over time and everything. And I teach a lot of, you know, tourniquets, chest seals, quick clot, all that sort of stuff. Because what happens if I go down? I want the guys to know what what to do if I get shot. Exactly. And so uh, at the very least, and you know, I keep my skills up. I think it's a position that, that often gets, I don't want to say overlooked, but to be a medic, you have to actually be willing to take a lot of your free time and donate that back. And what I mean is you have to do a lot of the, the research studies. You have to be willing to do training whenever you can. And I tell the guys, I'm like, hey, listen, why are you going out in the, uh, at, the, at the range today without practicing putting on tourniquets, without put it, practicing putting on chest seals, getting armor off, putting on a chest seal, and then putting the armor back on there. So a lot of that is the, the there has to be a lot of dedication to somebody who wants to be a, a medic on a SWAT team or a medic in the military at all. So. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've only had bits and pieces of it and I know yeah. how important it is. And the thing is, is what, what law enforcement does a great job in certain areas, but does a horrendous job in other areas. <laughs> oh yes, it does. Right. So you can have a John Imperial come to you and say, hey, listen, why don't we do these real practical type of scenarios where you have somebody down, you don't know where that blood is coming from, you're going to have to do this, and here's your time frame, right? Like, that's a real life scenario. Yep. Um, you know, and then at the same time, once you do that, you may do that for what, like, one, one shift, right? One yep. shift and one squad. And then the next squad may not do it. And then that one squad who did do it does it again, like a year later, a year yeah. later. Yeah, exactly. So the consistency is what it's horrendous, right? It's but terrible. I mean, I don't know about you. How many hours did you guys have to do when you were, when you were working, did you have a certain amount of hours you had to do every year just to maintain your certification? Yeah. So I, I can't remember the exact hours, but I know they were divvied up based on legal hours was a huge thing. I think okay. the legal was the thing that made you certified within the state that I was okay. in. 
Okay. It so wasn't for, anything else that and shooting. And once yeah. you get those, you're like, Oh, okay. You're golden. You're expert. done. And if they send you another training, we'll send you, a, we'll send you to a training. If we can afford to send you there and pay the overtime, it's going to cost it cover your shift. Exactly. All that sort of stuff. Right. For us in the state of New Hampshire. I mean, I, it's, it's pretty much no secret after this George Floyd incident in 2020 and the police reform, the training hours have increased. Prior to that, you had to do for the state of New Hampshire eight hours of continuing education a year. What? Eight. Eight hours a year. That's And I'm ridiculous. not saying good, bad, or indifferent because, you know, it's, to me, it's bad. I would not want to do eight hours. Think about that. You have, if, if your family's in danger, if my family's in danger, a guy who's been on the road seven, eight, nine years has only got, you know, maybe 40 hours of continuing education at the very least, you know, the department depending. That's the state setting the mandate. I think law enforcement, and I don't know if you know him uh, or listen to him, but Jocko Willink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, 434 Jocko, every morning with the workout, there you go. With the workout picture. <laughs> <laughs> so he has this thing where, he, you know, law enforcement should train 20% of the time. And I've kind of adopted that because it makes sense. You know, at least one shift every week, eight hours out of your 40 hour week or whatever it is. You know, if you're working 10 hours that day, you take two hours to go do training. Think about that. And it, it, it makes sense. You have to, you can go to a lot of gentleman courses as a law enforcement officer where it's okay. This is how you put the tourniquet on. This is how you put the quick lot in. This is how you put the chest seal. Maybe one, two scenarios at the very most. And then you're all done. And right. you may never even touch them again. And so that's where I think law enforcement, for matter of fact, sucks. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, we can do this training, check the box, and then we're off to the next one or back on the road, whatever it is. So it's, it's one of those things we definitely need to, to work on. And I think everything that's the good thing that's come out of this police reform is definitely I've seen is that the increased training. Now we have to do, I think it's a mandated. They wanted to change it to a minimum of 40 hours a year. I want to say they upped it to 24 because of just the staffing level and the, and the monetary with the whole defund the police. And then now we actually need funding the police to make that stuff happen. How so, about that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What do you, funny, what do you think actually goes? Yeah, it's funny <laughs> how that works. You yeah, know, it, you, you bring up such a key point because I think uh, the defunding the police, they look at the snippet, right? They look at the end result and... Part of the problem is, you're right, uh, it's not uniform all across. In the military, it's uniform, right? Yes. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a uniform thing in the sense of standards for physical fitness. Yeah. It's a uniform for what you have to do to get to whatever unit you need to. It's all across. Yes. And unfortunately, with law enforcement, because you have jurisdictions, you have different states, you have different counties, you have different locales. And then not only on top of that, you have different budget restrictions. You have different needs for the resources, right? For whatever that county, for whatever that township, whatever it is, big, small, little, you have all these different things that really, to me, hurts policing in the sense of training, as you talk about, because A, it is not this mandated thing. Am I for big government? Hell no. But am I for something that deals with where you can kind of uniformly get police officers to the level 
that the community deserves, quite honestly. Exactly. Because you don't want the, the least trained officer arriving there. And I think something else is good that's come out of this reform is that there's been a lot of, well, I think I say it recently, is just a lot of, I don't want to say like charities or donations, but a lot of officers have to go on their off time and take their own money where now they're getting less money because of overtime and everything because the budget's not there. Take their own money and now go to defensive tactics, go fund themselves to go to extra training. Whatever it is, they're paying for it out of pocket now. And now you see a lot of charities or 501c3s that are actually donating towards officers getting that. And I think that's one of the things that's uh, been good from the reform as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I've talked to a lot of nonprofits. Uh, one of the biggest things that I think that needs to change is also is this culture of silence that law enforcement has. Right. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, we're behind on the curve on that with leadership in the sense of like what they deem as something that's workable, um, which obviously they have to deal with insurance companies and and insurance companies says we're only going to cover if you're an alcoholic or if you're you know, if you saw something in the line of duty, you know, as opposed to we're a whole human being, man, yeah. we have, we have finance, we have finance issues. We have stressors with marriages, with people that are sick in our families, us being sick. We're humans. We're humans, but yet they only cover it as if it's like, no, you're an automaton. You come in a uniform. And if you don't get something in that uniform, we're not covering it. So and therefore- maybe. If you don't fill yeah. <laughs> that paperwork out, we might not cover it. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll still we'll we'll send it up the flagpole and see what happens, but right. you probably won't be covered. And yeah. that right there, I think, is the that I think is a huge problem because mental fitness on top of physical fitness and training is extremely, if not the most important aspect. Yeah, exactly. I think it was a 2019, and you probably have heard of Blue Help. Mm. Uh, they published in 2019, there was somewhere upwards of 240 officers that had killed themselves in the line of duty. And they're a newer organization. And having spoken with one of their past members, I, I know that when they take numbers, now that they're so new, they're taking numbers from prior years from when they started. And then if they discovered in 2019 that someone in 1976 had you know, committed suicide in line of duty, it made that number may or may not be misrepresented um, but it was somewhere it's upper, uh, somewhere like around 240 uh, number of officers and in the line of duty deaths were under that and it was just to me it was outstanding and freaking outrageous one of my best friends in college who was a police officer and he killed himself after his first year on the job and it was something that struck home uh, with me and I've gone through my own battles with counseling and mental health and it was just something that it just resonates within me to to make sure people are actually getting the help that they need and the help that they deserve from their you know their chain of command and their community and so it was that's kind of the one of the reasons why i started the the podcast it was just to put mental health more in the forefront of what it is or what it had been when i started in 2010 it was and Maybe the same thing for you. It was kind of, don't talk about it. What's what's the reason of, why, why do you want to talk about it? What's wrong with you? You're going to take your gun away. You're not going to have a job. You're not going to have a badge, but you're not going to make any money. So don't talk about it. And so that's 
the reason why I wanted to bring it out there. It's, it's okay. What happens when you're when you're you need an oil change? You go to the mechanic, get the oil change before you have something else worse that happens to your car. Well, all you're doing is bringing your brain in to get serviced by the the counselor, and before you need a major overhaul and something catastrophic happens. So. I think when I, when I was younger and you told me, hey, you need to go see a counselor, I would have said, screw off. I don't need uh, need to talk to anybody. As I got older and I heard more people talk about it and I started going myself and I, people probably get sick and tired of me talking about mental health and posting about it on Instagram, but I, they can screw off. I really don't care because it's, it's going to be one of those things I'm just always going to talk about just because of the, the positive in, impact it's had on my life. No, and definitely. And they, you know, I don't know about you, but when I looked at the Derek Chauvin video and I saw him, you know, kneeling on his neck for that length of time, I just saw that that look in his eye, and to me, it looked like there was something else that was going on there. And how many times had he been had the department reached out to him to seek mental health or, or any sort of counseling at all? And I don't know. I mean, it's just one of the things that that just kind of resonated with me and just another one of the reasons why I started the podcast, just to get it out there, break down the stigma. There's no shame in mental health game. And, and and yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and honestly, that's one of the things that that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast um, because it was more of a therapeutic aspect, right? It was something that you, you can get off your chest. You can talk about certain things. You can talk about, all types of stuff that deals with law enforcement, but then you can also, like I said, once I started getting guests and once I started talking to awesome people like you, you know, next thing you know, what happens? You have a community of people that, oh, you have gone through something similar or you feel or thought of something similar as well. And the next thing you know, guess what? You have connections. You're drawing connections as opposed to what? Being isolated. Being isolated exactly. in your own thought process and your own, you know, your own wheel of these negative aspects of like, nobody cares. Nobody really understands what I'm doing. Nobody really cares for me. Nobody loves All while me. you're isolating yourself, not only mentally, but physically from them. Yep. And then you turn to the bottle or whatever it is. And then. It exactly. Happens. Yeah. And, and so that right there, I think is one of the biggest aspects of what needs to come out of all this, right? Like one of the reforms that I feel is the most important is this mental health aspect of Mm -hmm. law enforcement, because of the numbers that you just quoted, right? 240, whatever the number is. I feel, unfortunately, this year, and what's happened in the past two years, with the narrative against police officers, is going to impact exponentially with how they treat themselves, how they see themselves and how their families see them because we yep. don't know what's going on at home, how their kids, friends see them, yep. how their kids are seen, all these different aspects, all these impacts and these ripple effects that we have no clue about. And Exactly. And what's that doing? That's, that's creating that divide between the community and then the officers. And we're supposed to be one. People are the police and the police are the people. It's, it's what we were taught. You know what I mean? It's, it, but it, unfortunately, it just creates that divide. And it's forcing. I was one of those guys who, for my own mental health, yes, I have police officers, or excuse me, friends that are police officers, but I 
have a lot more friends that aren't. And I felt it more therapeutic for me just because it, it separated myself or separated me from the actual job and gave me that mental break from it. It and grounds so, you. It grounds it, it, you. Yeah, it does. It does. It I'm gives you like a different... I can talk to anybody. So I can have, I got people I can talk to that are criminals and I'm arresting them or, you know, whoever it is. It's just one of those <laughs> things. But, you know. Yeah. You know what? You know how many times I've had a quote unquote criminal in the back of my cruiser or talk to them and we're dapping each other up at the end of the night? Yeah. It, you know, it's the best part about it, isn't it? It's, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I'd probably it, have it, more. And that's what people people don't network. understand that. Exactly. And I, I swear to God, if I was to get on a fight in the side of the road, there'd be guys that I've arrested five, ten times that would jump on the guy's back that was trying to beat me up. You know what I mean? It's right. having that good relationship with them. But yeah, it's the mental health thing over the past couple of years is just something that I wanted to talk about. And it, like you said, do even doing this the podcast, it's it's therapeutic. It's just getting out there talking to people, it's unloading it. And I've listened to a lot of other guys talk that were, uh, I'm fortunate enough to uh, make friends with some guys that were pretty high up in the military. And I've heard, I've heard a lot of them talk. And, you know, even Marcus Luttrell, you can go on YouTube and listen to a lot of his videos. It's therapeutic for him to talk about it, what happened in his life. Because he has to talk about it every single day. Everyone knows about it. And it just, it gets it off his chest. So people are, He's got to talk about what happened every single day of his life. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just therapeutic. And that's one of the reasons why I started this, just to give people a platform to, to vent. I mean, I like reading a lot of uh, biography books. I, mm -hmm. I don't really, I don't know if you read, but I just, I don't really like fiction. And I just, I, learning, I love learning about where people came from, the different mm -hmm. trials, tri tribulations, and how to relate to other people, you know, and, that's one of the reasons why I started this. Give them a platform, learn, talk to people I would have never have had the chance to talk to like yourself and just go from there. Exactly. It, it is a connective thing. And uh, you, you talked about books. This one book that I'm reading right now, actually, I'm almost done with it, but it's called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Have you read okay. it? Okay. I've, I, I've listened to a lot of Sebastian, but I haven't read his book yet. Oh my God. You need to read Tribe because <laughs> for one, it talks about... It's interesting. He, he talks about um, different aspects of what communal, even in old Native American communal societies and how when the settlers, quote unquote settlers, came into the U.S. and they would kidnap, uh, they would kidnap a lot of the white men and women, younger kids, whatever the case is. Okay. Um, and Native, uh, the Native Americans did. But a lot of times when those when those white people were saved from these tribes, a lot of these white people actually would escape their own white, I guess, their living and go back to the tribe. Really? And yeah. And what was interesting about it is he would talk about how the society was really egalitarian in the sense that everything that they did was for the betterment of the, the whole. And so they understood that there was a need for people to feel needed, to feel wanted, that they are actually attributing themselves and that they are like, it's like, it's so the, the reason I bring that up is because the reason we're doing these podcasts and that we get into therapy and that we think that it's very helpful is because 
we feel needed because once, and, and I don't know if this has been with you, but I've gone through my own therapy. I still do. I have my own group Zoom uh, sessions. And one thing that I've realized is that I feel that I am needed, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I've gone through a lot of some shit that other people are going through. So therefore, I can talk to them about what they can do to better their mental health by walking, by doing these structural things that I've done. And so that's what I have found. Like, so when I read that book, not only that, but tragedy and as you called it, tribulations, even in wartime, he talks about it in World War II where there was the blitz that happened. And during the blitz, the community in itself was together because they all needed each other to survive. And they all had a sense of like community with one another because they had a common thread of, I need you, whether it's for empathy, whether it's for food, whether it's for making me laugh, whatever the case is. And so when we talk about this and when we're sitting here talking to each other, you're in New Hampshire, you know, I'm in the DC area. Like (laughs) who knew that this was going to happen outside of, outside of what, right? Well, we, we may or may not have met each other when I've been down at Police Week a few times. I don't know. Exactly. It's uh, it's one of those things. Communities, whether it's your actual community, I mean, when a natural disaster happens, who can you rely on? Basically, it's, it's your neighbors. It's your actual community that surrounds you to help you out, to stop the flooding that's going on in your house, to come plow your driveway, whatever it is. It's having that community and then building that community that can up you know what i mean and, mm-hmm. and and speak with other officers who have gone through that it doesn't even have to be other officers or somebody who can who can relate to what you're going through and i think that just having that foundation of people who can't you can trust who know okay what i'm telling you has to stay between me and you and it, it shouldn't really go out and be spread out to the world right unless there's some prevalent issue of what's going on maybe there's some suicidal tendency or something like that there's having that that community that people you can trust and talk to and just i don't want to say like release but that's essentially what you're doing is you're releasing what's going on and i always thought when you go to a counselor or when you think about going to a counselor it's one of those like okay well this is how you should talk or this is how you should act or whatever it is it's you're, you're laying up on the bed and, and that's not right. how it is at all. No. It, it's, it's just having a conversation like this. It's allowing you to get it off your chest. And yeah, there's, depending on what type of counseling you you're doing, you know, there might be some sort of goal or structure to it, but it's mm-hmm. more or less just a conversation like this about what's happening and how you can get through it. And, and one of the things that I'd like to preach, like you, you like you were saying is the, uh, is the physical fitness side of, mental health what ha- you know it's what did what did have you ever seen austin powers i like to quote movies yeah so, yeah yeah no. yeah definitely yeah <laughs> yeah i'm a, i eat because i'm unhappy and i'm happy because i eat her whatever he says <laughs> in that. And, you know and so it's one of those things if if you once for me if i start getting wrapped up in my head i need to get out of my head and i gotta do something physical get moving like you said go for a walk go to the gym 
to start doing yard work with music on whatever it is it's getting doing something physical getting that blood flow we're getting that oxygen and blood flow to the brain release the endorphins that you're actually doing something good you're feeling good it's just the another part of uh mental health that i think often goes overlooked no definitely and you you touched on something because it, I think it goes deeper than that, too. I think there's an aspect of mental health that really stems from you have to get to origins, right? You have to get yep. to origins of trauma. You have to get to origins of upbringing. And I'm not saying you're making excuses because of those things, but right. there are reasons why we as human beings, especially if you have an addiction, especially if you have ways to respond to things, whether it's like hypervigilance or whatever the case is, those things can be traced back to a very origin time, even from the early days of whether it's from like zero years old, the first day you were born to about five years old. Right. And about what your natural, your, your, your primary caretaker, how they were with you, how they weren't with you, how they were properly attuned with you, how they weren't properly attuned to you. And so all these things help the brain or hurt the brain if you were physically abused, sexually abused. Uh, what type of trauma did you go through? What type of abandonment did you go through? All these things affect. And you talk about a lot of this. And so even when you go into therapy, I think part of that is not only the cathartic aspect of being able to just speak and being able to put this pain out in front of somebody that has no judgment, that yeah. has nothing about like, they don't know about John Imperial. They don't know where you come from, yeah. but yet you can talk to this person and you can feel safe about it. And part of that too, is they can look at you and they can start asking some probing questions for you to start looking at what is going on, not today, but when you were five, right? Exactly. You were six. You know, they, they, the, my counselor often said it was like peeling an onion, You're taking that first layer off. You're not diving right into, I mean, depends on the, the circumstance. I've gone to uh, the critical incident stress debriefing, debriefings. It's not really counseling, but it, it, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I've gone to that, but when you're actually going there to, to work on a problem that you may, may, may have at the time, it's, it's like an onion. You're peeling one layer back at a time to get to, like you said, what's the actual trigger maybe of when you were 10, five or zero years old or whatever it is. And you're not diving right in. You may know what it is, and you may know exactly what it is because you know yourself better than anybody else, but that's not what's going to happen. We're going to work back backwards, unpeeling one layer at a time because you're going to be thinking of things while you're doing that that you had no idea that bothered you. Exactly. So, and I'd like to, to say that like when you go looking for a counselor, it's like shopping for a car. Don't necessarily fall in love with the first one that you come across. It took me four that I actually went through until I found the fourth one that I actually could get something of, get something mm -hmm. from. I mean, the first one was looking out the window the entire time. Like I could, I could ask him my name while we were there. And I think he was just blank and just staring out the window. <laughs> like, okay, This guy sucks. I'm on to the next, right. you know, it, it eventually got better until I found the best one for me at the time. So don't just, don't just go to one. It's one of the things you want to shop around for. Everyone has their specialty of what they do, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or, uh, whatever other sort of addiction therapy it is. Um, I'm at a hotel right now, so it's just kids running down the hallway. No <laughs> worries, man. No worries. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like, like I said, just just you know, try different counselors, try different 
types of therapy as well. And, and, and hopefully you can find something that works best for you if somebody needs it. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the other things too, part of all this is being able to not only talk with one-on-one, but actually find a group that can actually right. accept you for where, who you are you know, and what you're coming in there for. When you were in law enforcement before you retired, did you start seeing a counsel before then? Or Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Did you approach there, your PD about it? Yes. My PD told me that what I was doing was pretty much trying to cover myself. So therefore they could care less. Real. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So that's part of my, that's part of my reasons why I started not only the podcast, but also started my own, um, my own support group and, you know, all those things, because there's a lot of men and women out there that are in horrendous departments that their department really doesn't give a shit what you're going through. They just care about whether you're coming to work or not. And that's one of a number that, and you're also, you're also, somebody there to like, you know, you cannot besmirch the badge, right? They don't care about the person. They care about protecting the brand. And so when it comes to that, you know, that's where I've heard a lot of officers talk about more so than, you know, departments talking about, Oh, we no, we care about your mental health. We care about this. There's only been one that I've, I interviewed a Lieutenant, his whole department. I mean, it, it and, and it came off the heels of tragedy. They had four suicides in one year in this department. And they wow. also had two officer involved incidences where two officers lost their lives. And the only way that they could go and change this whole structure is going to the bean counters and showing them the numbers of what they could save if, and the product that they would be able to put out for the community right? If they change things up. And so they actually have a brick and mortar wellness center and it's housed by PTSD specialists, doctors, and trauma people. And they actually do acupuncture. They do acupuncture in this place. Yes. I've seen it. I've gone through it and it's actually incredible. And they actually have a three strike rule where if you say, if John, if you're like, I have a alcohol addiction or sex addiction, or I have uh, addiction with opioids or whatever the case is. And they're, they immediately send you to a 30, 60, 90 day program. You come back. If you still have that issue, somehow it pops up, boom, you'll go right back. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's say you do that three times after the third time. It's like how, how I mean, we've helped yeah. you. We, I mean, there's only so much we can do. At that point in time, they start looking at, okay, now we need to protect ourselves. And so yeah, therefore, yeah. and, but, but think about that. Think about that. That is, <laughs> that in itself is monumental because what you're doing is you're establishing a program and you're investing in your people. You're not investing in something that is like just obscure of like, let's, let's invest in this image that we want to portray. And one incident can destroy that image or whatever the case is. But yet now what you're doing is you're getting ahead of the curve. You're getting people the help they need. They come back stronger, better, more mindful with all these different techniques to be able to help not only themselves, their families, the community, and also other officers that they can recognize. Dude, gal, you need help. Yeah, exactly. It goes back to what we were saying earlier with the whole training. It's, you know, you want the officer who's coming to your house that's not only physically fit, knows how to handle him or herself, 
in a situation, but who's also mentally fit. Because, yep. you know, at the same time, at the same, just like I do, there are some officers, you go to a call, there's a domestic, two people are screaming, you get it calmed down, this other person arrives, and a riot incites again, just because of one thing he said, because he's not having a good day, the, the other officer. So if you're not mentally fit, then how can you actually do your job well? And it, it's good to see that agencies are getting away from that old stigma of let's not talk about it you you swallow it you throw it away and you, you never thought never think about it again because you're it's going to come back to bite you in the butt eventually right. whether it's tomorrow or 15 20 years down the line it's going to come back and agencies should be investing in their people they're going to be there they may be there longer if they start investing in their officers and not and dispatchers as well and so mm-hmm. It's it's good to see that the agencies are doing it. I think in this area, it's definitely definitely been more recently uh, that they actually have that I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't gone to my agency to tell them I was doing training or doing training, doing counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something I did on my own. And they, what do you think that what do you think their response would be if you told them that? Probably pretty good. They, they would probably say like, well, that, that's, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. If you think you need any time off, I think I, I'm pretty sure that they would be supportive of it. They would, they would want to question like, why, what's going on? But, you know, I think, I think that they would be pretty supportive of it. Right. So, okay. yeah. Would that I mean, be something, I, and, and this is just completely off the cuff here. Would that be something that you would consider doing to try to even, because I think what happens is it takes one brave soul like yourself to go to back to an agency and say, Hey, listen, like I've gone through this. I kind of handled it on my own because I didn't think you guys would really do anything with it. Um, but at the same time, as I've gone through this, I would love to head up some type of initiative, some type of something to be able to have it where, the department, the agency, whatever can do to be able to put support out there for these people that may feel the same way. So I've done that. And it's been one of the things that is just stacked on my plate. (laughs) I've done it. It's just like, all right, well, we also want to get you guys and the people I worked with also wanted to get a uh, police athletic league started back up again. And it's like, all right, it's, it's just one of those things that's right that's just there and i and i i get the guides for it i went on like the uh the police chief's website national police chiefs or the international iacp mm. and got like their whole guide to do like the actually set up one of those uh peer support groups mm-hmm. but it's just been it's sitting right on the desk and you know it just hasn't it hasn't come to fruition yet but i did approach them and they were they were completely supportive of it that's awesome, man. Yeah. I, and, and it takes, uh, I think there, I think that's what they call what leading up, right? Yeah. You know, you got to lead leading up. up I think there's a, I think there's a lot of stuff that, you know, great ideas come from your, I hate this word, but I'll say it come from your subordinates. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they're not subordinates. They're your coworkers. They're your, you know, brothers and sisters that you just so happen to have just a higher rank than, but I'll, I'll tell you, when I was a sergeant, the majority of the ideas and the majority of the things that I always uh, levied anything against was not only the experience of whether it was a detective or an officer, 
you know, that that's what I cared about the most was, you know, what do you think? Because just because you put something on me as far as a promotion, that doesn't mean shit. When you were promoted, were you promoted back to the street or were you in the, the, uh, the unit as well? So when I was promoted, I was, it may be different than how they do it where you are, but when I was promoted, it was just, you're promoted to a level of sergeant. Okay. And then once you're, you know, I was on the street, so I worked midnights for a little bit and then I put in, so you have to write like a memorandum to say, I have an interest in this unit once that unit doesn't have a sergeant or whatever anymore. So they put out like an announcement and say, Hey, you know, such and such unit has an opening for a sergeant, you know, have your, here's the criteria to put in, you know, these many years of experience, you know, two past evals, blah, blah, blah. And then you go through a process. So you go through a process of like an interview process and stuff like that. Um, and they grade you and all this stuff. And I was fortunate and, you know, to be a sergeant for the gang unit that I was at. And so with that though, you know, it was, it was great experience. Um, very, very incredible detectives that did great work. And I'll be honest with you, all I was there to do is to help them however I could, whether it's to write up awards or whatever the case is. So right. It's one of those things it's you know you promoted so where i came from i worked for a few different pds just transferred and, and stuff like that but um a lot of them if you got promoted if you were a detective detective was kind of just an outside thing if you wanted to get promoted you went and get promoted to sergeant you had to go back to the road mm. and stuff like that so um i think like you were saying though once you get promoted it sounded like you were kind of you step, you take a step back from actually doing the work itself. Right. Yeah. Detectives underneath you, uh, you're, you know, it was a junior, you however you want to put it, but they were the ones out there and you took, you say, Hey guys, what do you need? And that's probably, you know, that saying those words and actually listening to them of what they need, you know what I mean? It, yep. it, whatever it's the newest, they probably want the newest gear, newest equipment, whatever it is or more time off that's what they're going to tell you but <laughs> you know but it, actually listen what they need how can i how, how can i help you get the job done it's one of those things where it's you know they're going to come at you with the different ideas maybe because they're a little bit younger so they look at things from a different angle or whatever it is it's you know listening to them about what's going on in, in that area and you know just having that that those new ideas and, and yeah just listen to them for what they need or just even old ideas, because I think what happens is a lot of times we try to reinvent the wheel, especially yeah. when you get promoted. Most promotions, people have these big ideas and it's like, what, dude? Like, we do that already. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, it's called this or whatever the case is. Like, or, or they come in with something that's absolutely stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, let's put light bars on undercover cars. Yeah, it makes no sense. Exactly. It makes zero sense. Like, yeah, we'll do that. Never. But thank you. Thank you for your idea, right? Um, Let me ask you, John, like in your career, right, with law enforcement, what has been like your most rewarding aspect of being law enforcement? I probably just getting out there and interacting with the community as much as I can. It's, uh, 
people look at me and, and, and this has actually been said to me by one of my old coworkers was like, just completely misjudge you. You're John, you're six foot four, 230 pounds. You got tattoos on your arms and whatnot. You look like RoboCop. And <laughs> he goes, but the first day I was out with you, he's like, you were out there talking to the people at the churchyard sale. The old ladies going to Cumberland farms, which is a, you know, gas station or area have, have coffee. You're over there for an hour, just talking to random people. And that's probably the most rewarding Thing because I love learning about where people came from and just what brought you what brought them to your your area. It's 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 awesome. I mean, even when you're making car stops, Christ, I'd be out there 10, 15 minutes. You know, you could be done a car stop in two minutes if you wanted to. Just talking to them. Wait, what are you guys doing up here? Oh, you're hiking, you're hiking Mount Washington. Oh, cool. What trail did you go up or stuff like that? And that's probably the most I'd say rewarding career. I've definitely had some rewarding calls, but Let's face it, 99% of the time in this job, it's people are having you or calling you because it's the worst day in their life to an extent. And you have to be able to find the reward within the, the negative. And one of my old FTOs from the first PDA I worked with, he goes, he actually likes handling death scenes. And I asked why. I'm like, well, you know, explain me why. I, I didn't get it at the time. I was new. It was like a year and a half on. I, you know, I was just like going to calls and whatnot. And uh, he's like, I, he just loved the, the fact that he could actually help the family through that process. Mm. And however it was, even if it was the first step in the process of just handling the scene and, and making sure everything's taken care of. But what I took away from that was you have to find the rewarding things, even in those shitty situations, whatever it is. If you're, we've been there where you're taking kids out of, people's arms because you know it's better for that kid to leave those parents than it is to actually stay with them mm. and it's a shitty thing it can be because you, you don't want to have the kid cry you don't want to you know cause any sadness to the families but you know they're not doing their job as a parent and you know the law has to uh, interdict and you know finding those things that like okay you're help you're helping that that kid at that point in time and, you know, I get back to a book. I've uh, one of my favorite books is uh, a book called Fearless. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard about I've the heard story. Of the story of Adam Brown who was a SEAL Team 6 operator. Prior to that, he was uh, addicted to crack cocaine and, and, and faced that struggle even while being in the Navy. And it's just something that, like, if I can help somebody who's going through a, a you know, drug addiction and even recommend that book to them of, Hey man, like this, listen, just cause you're, you're dealing with this right now. doesn't mean you can't make something of yourself, right. get off the shit and, and, and do something with your life. Get out of this area. Cause I, where I work right now, it's kind of the area can suck you in sometimes and not let you to not let you leave. Mm. And it's on that person to just get out of this area and make something with their life. And, you know, I just like recommending books to to somebody who's going through a, a struggle that I can relate through through the book and help them out with like, hey, listen, just because you're going through this doesn't mean you can't can't help yourself too. So I it's I really don't have one thing. A lot of guys you probably know, like, oh yeah, I saved, you know, this person's life or that person's life. I've I I have. I've gotten rewards for it and I definitely am proud of those moments, but and to me, it just it's it's helping 
to people who are who can't help themselves at that point in time. That's my that's where I get the reward from it. In the, that the interaction with just random people. You know, and that man, I love it because it sounds cliche, right? Like we get into this profession, or I got into the profession, you got into the profession, other people got into it maybe for different reasons, but ultimately once we were in it, we were there to be altruistic. We wanted yep. to be, we wanted to be helpful. You know, we wanted to be helpful however we could. And ultimately that's the reason why police officers do what they do. They do want to help. No other police officer I've ever talked to says, I'm going to get rich off of this. That's bullshit. <laughs> Nobody said I'm going to do this because you know, it's going to bring me, you know, notoriety and all these other things. I've never heard that. Yeah. You know? And so what you're talking about is not only the helpful aspect of just even having a good conversation with somebody at a swap meet or yeah. some overtime assignment that you're, you know, doing crossing duty, but you're also, you're talking about even the major stuff, you know, finding a, sh having a shitty situation, whether it's a death scene or whether it's taking a kid out of her, that kid's mother's arms or that family but at the same time, you're looking at it from a standpoint of I'm helping this kid. How is that going to help them in the long run? Right. Yep. Because we know, and that's what most people don't realize. They just see, they just see John Imperial, 6'4, 230, ripping this kid out of somebody's arm. But yet at the same time, they don't know what precipitated that. They don't know the abuse and the absolute chaos this kid lives in. They obviously don't know what happens with that kid. 10, 15 years down the road, right? When you could possibly have saved that kid's life. Nobody knows that, but yet they're going to look at you and they're going to say, how dare you take this yeah. little child, right? Because what happens? The neighbors come out, they pull out their cell phone and they got a <laughs> two and a half minute video of this kid screaming that he hates the cops or whatever it is. And they have the video of the cop pulling right. this kid away while and the parents yelling at him. And that's what happens. <laughs> so. No, it is. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a tough question. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to have you put your, your, your chief hat on. Oh, geez. Here if we you go. can. Okay. <laughs> if you were chief, how would you handle the morale of your troops within the narrative of this negative sentiment that's happening with police? You had to, you had to ask that question. <laughs> you had to. Uh, I think it, it kind of comes back to what we were both saying earlier of go down, have a meeting with them, take my badge off, toss it aside, show myself as a human being and say, what can I do for, for you guys? Mm. And I'm not just talking about the time off. If you guys need time off, we'll get it to you. But, you know, just having, having their back, showing their support of you're not here for the brand, you're not here for the, the badge. Yeah, you are sworn to protect and uphold this community at uh, whatever cost it may be. But at the same time, we are human beings. You're no more of a human being than I am. I just have a different rank or whatever it is. What do you need to do your job better? Do you guys need, do they need some sort of counseling? Do they need time off while they're working to go to the gym for half an hour? Stuff like that, just to, to separate themselves. And just to show the support that we that we got them, and I know where we where I was working, we were on we worked twelve hours a day as it is, and sometimes it seemed like we were working every single day of the week just because of the manpower, and so 
what can you what can I do? What can I do? Can I get you a half an hour off to take your strip your uniform off and go to the gym and go for a quick workout, whatever it is in the middle of your shift, you know, stuff like that, just to just to help them out as much as I can. I guess I can't really give a specific answer, but uh but yeah, I guess that's that's what I go with right now. That's a very basic and I'm not First of all, I'm not minimalizing what you're about to, what I'm about to say. I'm not minimalizing what you just said. Yeah. That's a basic answer and what's amazing about that answer at the same time is that in my experience, that's never been done. No. Never. In 20 years, right? Yeah. In 20 years that I worked, I've never had a chief just say, "Hey, listen guys, what do you need? How can I help you? I care about you." I want to be here for you. It's usually some other bullshit, right? Yep. Some other, you know, some other, you know, type of speak where really the only verbiage I can even come up with or the only <laughs> the only statement I can come up with is what I want to respond to usually when I hear a chief talking. It's like, listen, dude, don't piss down my leg and tell me it's raining. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's really right. Like that's really what happens. Like don't be the politician. And that's what you're talking about. You're not being the politician. You're being the person that does everything the same. You put on the pair of pants, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you bleed, you do all these things. And that's really what a sign of a leader is. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, John, I don't see a whole lot of that in this community anymore. <laughs> I know. I know. It's the truth though. It's, it's that, you see too much of, yeah, we'll be there until you cross that line. Right. Once you cross that line, we're, we're, we're no longer where we were. And I get it. I completely understand. I'd also, I guess one of the other things is cops seem to be shooting themselves in the foot with the whole social media thing. Mm. And they, they are doing it because of the whole no social media policy. And we had that, I don't know if you've, you've seen in the news in the past couple of days, um, an officer in my area was suspended because of the whole LeBron James thing. He made a TikTok video and he called LeBron James out on TikTok. Uh, Kudos that, to that man, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I but anyways. That, his PD has a very no, or strict no social media policy while on duty. And while I understand where they're coming from and the other the other half of me can't understand it whatsoever it's right. you know i i get what their what their intent was but maybe that sometimes procedures and sops and policies are written so so broadly that no matter what you're going to break it because if you go on facebook to investigate a, a gang crime guess what you're breaking the policy right there because no social media right. and so I guess one of the things I, I'd like to change is to allow officers more freedom. Don't cross the line. Don't post any racial stuff. Don't post any derogatory stuff. Anything that has to do with or incendiary incite yeah, anything. Right. Exactly. Just give them more more freedom to interact with the community. It's different because sometimes in the eyes of the chief of police who've been there forty something years, the community is just out on the street. Well, the community ain't just out on the street anymore, chief. It's also on that that phone it's on that computer it's on social media that's where the community is well in leverage that tool that we have now so 
that's just that's another thing that I like to change. That's so smart. I mean, it is. You know, it, there's so much at our fingertips to be able to promote positive aspects of law enforcement. Yeah. Listen, uh, my opinion is my opinion, and I commend that officer, whatever his rank was. I commend that uh, video because, for one, I thought it was very to be honest, tastefully done in the sense of like, it was. I thought so too. <laughs> and at the same time, it's like, all right, like, don't tell me how to do my job. Yeah. Don't tell me yeah, how to do my job when you have no clue. Like, I'm sure he probably can't dribble a basketball between his legs and then go, <laughs> you know what I mean? And go tell LeBron yeah. James, like, no, this is how you dribble a basketball. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's the correlation, right? Like, you know, so yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think we need to be able to, in a sense, promote policing in a very positive way and to use the platforms that we have, whether it's podcasts like yours and mine, whether it's social media, whether it's TikTok, uh, these things, or even just promoting it in a sense of, um, you know, positive scopes of showing cops playing basketball with kids in the community, or like you going out on a swap meet and talking to little old ladies and, you know, yeah. Tell them about your tattoos. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, my fiance gets pissed because sometimes they just come right up and I want to see a tattoo. <laughs> they roll up my sleeve. She's, like, she's also on the job, too. And she's like, I can't stand it. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I got a question for you, though, real quick. And, it, and I, I think we're in the same train of thought. But a lot of questions we get of while working, you know, sitting down in the roll call room, whatever, wherever it is, is the general question is, how do you rate how good an officer is? Mm. How do you, and then I want to get your opinion on that because I'll give you mine. A lot of guys are statistic driven. How many arrests have you made? How many car stops have you made? A fence report. And they're based solely off that. And you, you can't tell how good an officer is because of those things. Yeah, they're good. You know, they're, they give you some insight. Because you want to so you do want to show productivity of what you're you know any boss wants to see production, but right. that isn't the sole thing. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that because that's me. It, it, numbers don't have anything to do with it, and that's just been one of the things that we've always kicked around. And I think it's yeah. a great question, and I, I have a hopefully a good answer for you. For me, to be honest with you, it's an immeasurable thing. You know, and I think what's happened is police departments and law enforcement in general has become so revenue driven that they have to look at metrics, right? And so that metrics then turns into this competition of I've done more car stops, I've written more tickets, I've locked up more people, I've done all these things. But yet, there's been incredible officers that I've been around that really didn't do a whole lot of the drug arrests or the interdictions or the you know, traffic stops or whatever, but yet they were incredible in talking with the community. They were the ones that would be like, let's get out of the car and let's go walk, you know, yeah. let's get out. And they would know the owners of the businesses. They would know, you know, kids in the neighborhood, they would know the leasing agents of certain apartment complexes and they built these relationships. And to be honest with you, to answer your question is you have to be able to measure an officer based off of the immeasurables. So to me, how do you do that? I don't know how you do that. Yeah, me either. But, and, and so that's the, that's the catch 22, right? Because from the bean counters, they're looking at it from just pure metrics, but yet from an officer standpoint, being very knowledgeable about their area, their district, their jurisdiction, 
and being able to pass along information and also bridging the gap with the community and a lot of different facets. Nobody sees that. Nobody sees that, right? And so ultimately, how can you change that? I think what happens is a lot of times what needs to happen is the change needs to come from the top, right? Yeah. Instead, of, instead of focusing on these things, instead of focusing on the aspect of traffic stops and all this stuff, and I'm not saying that those things aren't needed, but all I'm saying is that let's reshift the focus of what truly community policing is. Community policing isn't pissing the public off with a little <laughs> bullshit, right? Like, yeah. even in my jurisdiction, you know, part of it is, listen, I'm all for being able to respond to what we call an EDP, an emotionally disturbed person. Yep. But I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't have the tools. To, you know, I can try. I can do the best I can. But once this person breaks the law or once this person starts, you know, on the path of possibly endangering the lives of other people and even myself, guess what I have to do? My whole, <laughs> my whole training doesn't go to, wait a minute, I got to calm little Johnny down because whatever, you know, I have to, I, I'm trained to protect life. So therefore my whole thing turns into, I got to do this one thing. Yeah. But yet at the same time, that's not my responsibility either, right? Like, I don't know those things. Majority of our reasons for going to EDP calls is because that's just what the community thinks. Let's just call the police. And depending on the jurisdiction you're in, they're probably like, okay, well, we want to show that we are needed. And even if it's in this, we'll take on that responsibility, which ultimately you're taking on a huge responsibility in a lot of different areas, right? And right. you're also taking resources off the street because what happens is when you go to those calls, sometimes you may have to be, sometimes you may have to commit emergency, commit the person. And then once you do that, you have this whole snowball effect of eight hours, 10 hours waiting with this person. Then you got to drive them somewhere if you don't have a psychiatric institute near you. And then you may have to drive an hour away and you may have to have another officer with you just in if case. they have a bed open. If they have a bed open. And so then ultimately, but yet at the same time, it's like, oh, you want the police to handle all this? That's what you want? Yeah. Like, Meanwhile, can you, uh, can you contact this victim? Because they haven't heard back from me in the past three <laughs> days and they've been up my ass, you know, sending emails to the chief. So the chief's been up mine, you know, right. stuff like that. It's, it's just, it's a snowball effect. And so ultimately, I think part of this reform is take some of this bullshit off of our plate and actually let professionals deal with it. If they want us to come in to be able, in a sense, to be an escort for possibility of violence or whatever the case is, then yeah, okay then we'll be there. But we know our role is specifically if this person acts in a violent way, then this is how we are going to act as police. Right. But if they don't act that way, you have somebody there that can go ahead and do everything. And then they can actually have their own transport and their own things to be able to deal with it. Yeah. And it's like, a, it's a, it's a catch 22 sometimes because you go to those calls and you know what the fourth, fifth and sixth order effect has to be. You know that this person has to, get to the hospital, start taking beds or whatever it is, you know that that has to happen and it will, but then you're stuck with the question of, well, am I actually allowed to legally place this person into protective custody right now? Because, well, his mom is saying that he wants to hurt himself, but he's saying no. 
but he just says he's been depressed. But his mom told you that two hours ago he had a gun to his head. And it's like, it's the, the, the gray area. It's, you know, this person needs help, but I'm still stuck on number one where it's, you know, I can't right. worry about the ones down the, down the road. It's, Christ, I'm just worried about, am, am I actually legally allowed to take this person's freedom from him to bring him to get help? You right. know, stuff like yep. that. And yeah, it's, it sounds like you and I are on the same page when it comes to comes to that. It's just one of the questions that just was kicking around in my head. And, you know, yeah. and, and no, I've, talked about it, I've talked a lot about it the past couple of weeks. And it just, yeah, a lot of the guys are still stuck in that old mindset of, you know, numbers, numbers, are, numbers are the thing. <laughs> go out there and make 30 car stops a day with five arrests and whatever it is. And it's like, dude, I can barely find three cars to pull over because I'm speeding on my way to work. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you know. Uh, man, yeah. that's awesome. That it, it's it's very true too. John, listen, man, I have thoroughly I could sit here and talk what it's 10 o'clock right now. I could talk yeah. literally all night long. Oh yeah. But the listeners, unless I'm unless I'm Joe Rogan, which I'm not, <laughs> three to four hour interviews, which is insane, and I do listen to them. Oh, um, me too, me too. But regardless, man, we're getting down to the end of this podcast. And for one, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm honored that you came on. I'm I so thankful. It. Two, my last question for you is this: It's not even a question; it's more of your time. What do you want? to put out there as your overall message to those listeners that are listening right now? If they have family that's in law enforcement, support them in whatever possible way that they can. It's making sure that they recognize the little things about what's going on. If they recognize, you know, that person's gained weight or they've dropped weight drastically over the past month, there may be other things going on that they need to be concerned with. And I'm talking about more mental health and it's not just that the one indicator it is there's other indicators <clears throat> excuse me to look for if something else is happening maybe they've become uh less talkative when they used to be you know extremely outgoing all that sort of stuff you know look at those little indicators and be there for that person and don't pressure them to seek help but definitely be a be a shoulder or an ear to for them to vent and I guess, you know, for the actual law enforcement officers that are out there listening to us, just to, uh, if they if they need help, if they think they need help, it's probably been a lot longer than they've been thinking about it, that they've actually needed some assistance. And there isn't any shame in it. Get out there, your, your, your PD shouldn't take your badge and your gun. You're going to have a job. You're out there bettering yourself to make yourself a better cop a better first responder, EMT, paramedic, firefighter, whatever it is, you're making yourself a better husband and wife and a, and a brother and a sister at the same time as well. It's not just focusing on law enforcement thing. It's focusing on bettering yourself as a person. And that's, that's pretty much the, uh, my thing. It's, you know, yeah, we all have that mint, that macho mental attitude, but get, get over it. It's don't let your ego get in the way of you bettering yourself. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much again. Uh, thank Appreciate you for having it. me on, man. This has been, this has been awesome. 
Yeah, man, it's been great. And I love it. So like I said, I could be on for the next uh, next couple hours talking about a whole bunch of shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Next> <laughs> but anyways, we'll a beer while we do it. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, John Imperial. And again, ladies and gentlemen, yes, that's his real name, John Imperial. <laughs> go ahead and give all the things that you're on social media, your podcast, go ahead and plug that and how people can get in touch with you. Yeah, we're on a, we, we do have a Twitter account as much as I hate Twitter. Um, so I would say you can follow us on there, but mainly, mainly right now is uh, on Instagram appointment podcast. We do not have a Facebook. I got rid of mine seven years ago and I, it's been the best thing for my soul since then. So um, just on Instagram appointment podcast, you can follow us on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google play, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, it's up there. Uh, my co-host and I took a back seat. Meantime, um, just because of just per different personal things we both had going on, we've been trying to kick it back up. I should be recording a podcast coming out next week. Or actually, not coming out next week, recording it next week to come out you know, in a few weeks after that. Um, and we have 17 episodes right now, working on number 18. And uh, yeah, just if you, hey, guess what? Like I said to everybody on mine, is if you don't like it, give us a zero. If you love it, give us a five. And, leave us some comments too. Cause I like reading them. So awesome, and I don't man. try to go down the comment rabbit hole. Cause you know how that could be where it's, <laughs> as soon as I started the Instagram, it was, I got AC, the ACAB, ACAB, all cops are bastards. Uh, immediately it was, it was just, hey, love to hate you. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but well, that's awesome. Yeah. Again, I ladies and gentlemen, her. that's the point man podcast. Yes. And this is John Imperial for Point Man Podcast. Thank you so much, John. This is Brownie and Blue, and we're out.